Well, our time so far in our study in the book of 1 Peter has been filled, as I've said before, with, with great truths of the Christian faith. We, we have scaled some heights in our study thus far. We have scaled the heights of, of some of the monumental theological certainties. And, and at the same time, we've plumbed the depths of the vast ocean of, of the attributes of God, of things that are true about God. We've been learning some great things. Things like we've been born again. Those who are trusting in Christ have been born again to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Such that you and I can rightly say that we're part of the family of God. And and because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually are eagerly anticipating that day when we will be with him, but we'll look on his face. We're looking forward to his return in, in power and great glory. And it's, and it's because of that, we continue on in the book of 1 Peter, that we understand that you and I have been called to live holy lives. Holy lives. Lives in which uh, we are living differently than the rest of the world. Lives in which we are living differently than we used to live. We found that it's a great honor to be called a Christian, that it's, a, that it's an honor to be called by the name of Christ, to be a believer in Christ, even though many others stumble over him in their unbelief. We who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are said to be chosen, royal, Holy, we, we are a unique possession of God with the purpose of proclaiming his supremacy and his superiority in a dark and wicked world. And thus far in our study of the book of First Peter, as we've brought those things out, we have talked a lot about the Christian's estrangement to this world. The Christian's estrangement from this world. In fact, Peter tells us that we are actually strangers Peter tells us that we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are wanderers in this world. It's just like the old spiritual song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Some of you know that song. Some of you can, can say it along with me. When it comes down to it, You and I as Christians, we just don't feel at home here, do we? We, We're we're just strangers. We're aliens. We just don't belong. Or, Or do we? Last week, we began to notice a, a shift in Peter's words. And you see, while Peter has emphasized the fact that Christians are aliens in this world... He's beginning now to turn to the reality that while we're aliens to this world, we are residents in the world. We're aliens to this world. We're strangers to it. We don't belong. This isn't our home, yet we're residents in the world. And it is imperative that everyone who is a true believer in Christ get this down. Mark this down. You are not living in this world by mistake. You're not living in this world by mistake. Peter instructs us in that. In our passage today, in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he, he's not just talking now about our residency, but he actually begins to talk about our citizenship. In fact, he shifts from talking about our alienness to our citizenship. We're aliens to be sure, that's true, but we're also citizens. And we must understand that as Christians, we are citizens in this world. And that's really hard. It's a difficult thing for us to remember. It's a difficult thing for us to apply, even more so because We are living in an age of increasingly evident corruption in every way. If it's possible for darkness to get darker, it's happening. 
It's happening in every level of human, uh, human created order. But this is particularly evident in human government. And, and guess what? It's not new. It's always been corrupt. That's the reality. Combined with that truth and realizing that we are aliens here in, in every way often serves to be the reason for us to think that you and I can treat such human institutions with indifference, apathy, disregard, even disobedience. Let me put it another way. Since we are a holy nation, that's what we are, 1 Peter 2, 9. Since we are a holy nation, do we have any allegiance to an unholy nation? That's a question. Should we, as God's people, just retreat into our own little Christian groups and our own little Christian communities and have nothing to do with the institutions of the world? Our text today begins to address that subject. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, you'll see that Peter is now set on addressing how a Christian lives in the midst of the world. Let me define terms before we read the text. I'm going to use the term world to speak of the present evil system of things, the present evil order of things. Now, I'm not talking about, when I talk about the world, I'm not talking about an American system of things. I'm not talking about a Chinese system of things. I'm talking about the human system of things, which is at odds with God. That's what we mean when we use that word world, the cosmos. So we're commanded in the scriptures to, quote, not love the world or anything in the world. Loving the world refers to being devoted to what the world values or treasures, the philosophies, the priorities of the evil world system. And that present system of things is not governed by the president or by Congress, but by the devil. We see some great doctrinal truths here in 1 Peter, but now we're going to get very practical. We're going to now learn how a Christian lives in a society... Verses 13 through 17, how the Christian lives at work, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2, and then how a Christian lives at home, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Today, our text, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, how a Christian lives in the society as a citizen in, a, in the world that is dark and wicked. What are we to be? What are we to do? That's a serious question for us. Let's find out. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, side note, at that point, I just want to say, well, now let's take our Bibles and turn to John 3.16 and do something different. <laughs> then explain what this means. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Why? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. We've read your word, O oh Lord. We've opened it and read it, and we would seek to understand it. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do this morning is walk through this text. We're going to answer the question, uh, how do we live as a citizen in this dark and wicked world? What are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And in order to answer that question, I'm going to point out to you four features of this text. Four elements to this text, which will help us to comprehend not only our role as citizens, but how to live in a world in which we are actually aliens. So the four features. First of all, verses 13 and 14, you'll notice, you can't miss it. There is a very clear directive, a clear command, a clear directive. Then, 
verse 13, and then verse 15, if you put those two together, you'll see a compelling motive for that directive. Verse 15, we'll notice the objective. He communicates an objective for this. And then verses 16 and 17, he gives us a course to live. So a clear directive, a compelling motive, a communicated objective, and a course to live. What is the directive? What's the very clear, unmistakable, undeniable objective? What is it? Be subject. It is our submission. The clear directive is our submission. We might say that what we notice here in this text is that Peter commands civil obedience. Now, that's quite amazing when you consider to whom and when Peter is writing this. You know as well as I do that he's writing in the days of the Roman Empire under the reign of the deranged, maniacal, sodomite, God-hating, Christian-killing emperor named Nero. That, however, is not just a fitting description of the figurehead of the empire, but it turns out it's an actual description of the majority of the people in the Roman Empire at the time. It's their general attitude, the general lifestyle of the people in the Roman Empire. Now, the clear directive he gives is to be subject, literally to submit yourselves, be subject. That word subject there is, is taken from a military context, and it refers to arranging oneself under the authority of a commanding officer. One man said that the best translation would be put this way, put yourselves in an attitude of submission. That's the directive. Put yourselves in an attitude of submission. I agree with Charles Swindoll who said, our problem is not understanding what submission means. Our problem is doing what it says. And I hope to be able to explain what Peter has in mind as we move through the text. Now, we might, at least if you're like me, want to take issue with this right away. There might be a lot of, but, kind of thoughts coming to your mind. But I just want to remind you of the characteristics of members of the kingdom that we learned about last week. We're not to be known as rabble rousers. We're not to be known as rioters. We're to be known by our poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, by our mercy, our purity, our peacemaking, We're to be known as being persecuted yet protected, reviled yet rejoicing. That's the character of the members of the kingdom. Jesus made that very clear, indelibly clear, Matthew chapter 5. So what is this directive? Put yourself in an attitude of submission to, to whom? Well, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every human institution, the ESV has it really good there. You see it. We know from the context, what is this human institution that Peter has in mind? He is referring to governing authorities, governing institutions. Now, I want you to see something. This word translated institution is the word that is only ever used to speak of a direct creation of God. Every time it is used in the New Testament, it only ever refers to the work or product of God. In other words, these institutions, these human uh, institutions are ordained by God. And that's exactly what we read in Romans 13, isn't it? Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I appreciate what Pastor H.B. Charles said on this. He said, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution is a nonpartisan command that transcends government systems, cultural ideologies, political parties. We are to subject ourselves to every duly constituted office and ordinance. Verses 13 and 14 present the scope of Christian submission by by, uh, discussing or describing two levels of government. Every human institution, then what does it say? Whether it be to the emperor or as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
nationally and locally. The national leaders represented there in the emperor, the local leaders represented here in the governors. He doesn't say we're to agree with, <laughs> doesn't even say we're supposed to like the practices, the policies, even the people, but we're called to live under submission. Now, Peter has in mind here that he's not wanting those who claim to follow Christ, to be a holy nation, a, a people called out by God for his own purposes. He doesn't want us to think that somehow we are outside of the established human authorities, those authorities that have been appointed and presented by God. Verse 16, I think, makes this very clear. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. He's concerned here. What Peter's really concerned about is that Christians would not use their Christianity as a vehicle by which they might rebel against human governing authorities. You know, we'd say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not in your world. Therefore, I'm not under your little laws. Now, while that might be tempting and quite appealing on some cases, uh, that would be an ungodly way of thinking of human government, however convenient it would be. Um, it would be convenient if I could just avoid paying taxes and say that I'm, I'm a Christian and I don't have to pay taxes. Or be helpful if I could just disregard the speed limit after all I'm late for church. My question is, why would Peter even say this? Why would he have to bring this up? I think he has to bring it up because it's a real thing. Because you know as well as I do that a Christian must obey God rather than man. And it's not always the case that we just inherently obey governing authorities. We, we see examples in scripture of what we might call necessary civil disobedience. Exodus chapter 1 verse 17. I think of the, the Hebrew midwives refusing to, to kill, to abort those Jewish babies. Or Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's three friends refusing the, the edict of the king to worship him or Daniel chapter 6, Daniel himself refusing to obey the edict of the king to not pray to any other God but himself. Or Acts chapter 5 verse 29, the apostles saying, you know what? We're not going to stop preaching in his name. You you decide for yourselves what's good and right, but as for us, we're going to obey God, not man. There are indeed times when we could find ourselves at the precipice of needing to obey God rather than man. Peter is not addressing that right now. He's not addressing what we might call necessary civil disobedience. He's addressing necessary civil obedience. He's talking about the general posture of the Christian toward governing authorities. That's the clear directive. Let me move on to talk about the compelling motive. What would motivate us to do such a thing? (laughs) Well, he says this, for the Lord's sake. Literally, the words are because of the Lord. Now you take that to mean because of Christ's example, and it, it probably means that. Because of Christ's example. We're to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and how he submitted to human institutions, even unjust ones. He paid taxes. He submitted. Why? Because God is at work. You see, what I think here is that the, the emphasis is not only when he says, for the Lord's sake, not simply because of Christ's example, but because of God's existence. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ understood that God was doing that which he had decreed and decided to do from before the foundation of the world. And that is key for us, brothers and sisters. We have to remember that God is at work even in the midst of situations and circumstances that seem to be bleak and dire. God is at work. Remember the book of Esther some years ago? We studied through that in the, in the summertime. And we never found God mentioned by name. Not one time in the book of Esther. But we see the, what we might see, say, the untraceable hand of providence working none. The less. God's not mentioned at all directly, yet he is working even in the midst of a godless system. Even in the midst of a godless system of things, God is at work. And what is he doing? 
Now, we're t- trying to say here, what's, what's motive, what is the compelling motive for this submission, this general posture of submission toward governing authorities? I'm telling you this. It's for the Lord's sake, recognizing that God is at work even in the midst of a godless system of things. What is God doing? That's a big question we might have. What in the world could God be doing? Well, I'll tell you the two things God is doing all the time. God, in the midst of a godless system, in the midst of a godless world, we have to remember this, or I'm going to tell you, we will go crazy, and some already have. God is doing two things. God is saving from judgment, and God is securing in judgment. What do I mean? I mean... In the midst of a godless system of things, we can't lose sight of this fact. God, even in this godless system, is going about saving people out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chapter 2, verse 9. Praise the Lord. He's saving people for his own name. And we don't have time today to trace this, but we can see it throughout all the Old Testament. You can talk about Abraham. We can talk about Noah. We can talk about Moses. We can talk about the nation of Israel. We see that everywhere that God is saving a people for himself. But we also can't lose sight of the fact that in the midst of of a godless system, God is not only saving from judgment, God is also securing for judgment. I just want to take you for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now we're going to get there in a few years in our study. But I want to give you a, I want to wet your whistle for what we'll find in 2035. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me just begin reading verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now look at this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but here's the point, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is securing a people for judgment. That's what he's doing today. When we fret and fear, we fail to remember that God is at work. Every time another godless law gets gets signed into existence, every every time another godless person seems to to, to slip more into his godlessness, I got to remind myself that God may very well save a people for himself out of that darkness. After all, he saved me. But that God may also use that same darkness as a judgment to hold people in judgment for judgment that is to be unleashed upon them. We have to remember Christ's example, but we must remember that God exists. So many Christians, when it comes to how we relate to the society and think of our relationship to this world and our responsibility... We think that God is dead. We forget he's at work. You remember Martin Luther, the the mighty reformer, leading the Protestant Reformation, a man of great faith, yet Martin Luther was a man like us. And he was often given to fits of despair and depression and despondency. And one day, Martin Luther, despite his great faith, became uh, depressed He got his eyes on the circumstances. He got his eyes on the situation rather 
than God. And he refused to come out of his room. And he sat there brooding in a state of melancholy, looking at the situation, looking at the circumstances, and he wouldn't come out. And his wife's name was Katerina, and she tried to coax him out of the room, but he wouldn't move. So one day, she decided to put on a black dress, put on a black hat, put on a black face, veil over her face and gloves, and she came into the room. She was dressed for a funeral, and he looked at her and asked, who died? And she said, haven't you heard? God did. And he said, woman, that's blasphemy. And she said, yes, and it's blasphemy for you to be living like he's dead. When we fret and fear all godless people being godless, when we fret and fear a wicked system being wicked, we live like God is dead. In fact, were we to try to riot and rebel, we'd actually be interfering with God's work of saving from judgment and securing for judgment. We have a problem with the policies, the practices of evil men and the evil system of things, and rightly so. But listen, this sobers me tremendously. As I said, each time we see a godless policy enacted, every time I read of and witness godless men and women doing godless things, I remember that some of them may very well be saved by God, and some of them may very well be kept in judgment for the final day by that very godlessness. So don't think that God's not at work. We're called to put ourselves in a place of submission for the Lord's sake, but we're also called to put ourselves in a place of position for the Lord's will. Back to 1 Peter now. Chapter 2, he says, for the Lord's sake, verse 13. But then in verse 15, he says, for this is God's will. I think it's interesting that so many of us Christians mope around saying we want to know what God's will is. Oh, you know, woe is me. I don't know what God's will is. When he's clearly revealed his will in the scriptures. God's will is that you and I be subject to every God-ordained human institution. What about those with whom we disagree? What about those who are godless? Again, Peter's not talking about necessary civil disobedience. That would come in the, in the position of, in cases where, where we are called to directly disobey God. But the, the overall posture of the Christian is to be one of submission. We have to remember something, friends. We've got to go back to verse 9 and remember our purpose in this world, which is what? That you, remember we talked about y'all, all y'all. The church, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember that? We're called to proclaim, to publish, to publicize, to advertise the supremacy or superiority of the one true God over lesser gods. How do we do that? Well, we do it first of all through our sanctification. We talked about that in verses 11 and 12. Now he's telling us, beginning in verse 7 and verse 13, We do that through our submission. How does that accomplish anything? It says this. It says to governing authorities that God is so superior. He is so far superior, so far supreme, so much supreme that he is actually the reason that you are ruling in the first place. It's exactly what Jesus said, Pilate. God is so far supreme, God is so much superior to you, that he is the reason that you are ruling in the first place, and God actually tells me to submit to you insofar as It doesn't disobey him insofar as you remain in your lane. I'm going to do that because God is supreme. God is superior. That's why I'm going to do that. That's the the motive. What's the objective? Notice how he communicates this objective. It's very clear here in verse 15. This is the will of God... That, so that, purpose clause, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is it that we, what is the objective? Do you see it here? Put to silence. 
Hush the mouth. <laughs> Literally means to muzzle, to, to restrain, to gag. To restrain the ignorance. Ignorance is a word that actually refers, it doesn't just mean mentally unaware. It's a word that refers to the hostile rejection of the truth. This is so important. It says that those who are speaking against Christians, those who are speaking against God, are not just speaking against Christians, they're speaking against God. What, remember what Jesus said. He said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the reason the world hates you. So this, that you might gag, that you might restrain, that you might hush the mouth of ignorance, of hostility. Whose hostility? Of foolish people. Those without sense. That's who it is. Those without sense, those without the moral capacity of mental sanity. We see what it is, but now just notice who is involved. Those without sense, those who lack moral capacity of mental sanity. The reason they attack, the, the reason that these people attack the gospel is because they are morally senseless. The ignorance of foolish people, those who are morally senseless. And God says, the objective is to shut their mouths, to muzzle them. <laughs> we talked about this earlier. We, it's the same thing as he said back up in verse uh, 12, see your deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We define that day of visitation on the day when God either comes to save them or to bring his judgment on them. He'll just stop their mouth. They won't be able to talk anymore. It's just silent. God will, will restrain their morally senselessness. God says that by this general posture of submission for the Lord's sake and because of the Lord's will, that God will, either in salvation or judgment, hush the mouths of foolish people. Maybe you've heard about the, the Mau Mau uh, uh, freedom fighters in Kenya. In 1950, in the 1950s, the Kenyan nationals called, they were named the uh, Kaikuku, or Kaikuyu, Kaikuyu, I don't know why I'm trying to say it, but Kaikuyu, they were fighting for freedom against the British, and anyone who refused to join them was considered an enemy, and they would go around, even in, in, in people of their own uh, a nation, they would go around to those villages, and they would raid and attack uh, anyone who decided not to join the rebellion. One of those fighters in the Mau Mau rebellion actually came to Christ. And here was his testimony. He said, I was one who led a group of fighters to attack a Christian family at night. We were ordered to do it because they were, quote, hardcore resistors. But to my surprise, that man loved us. He said he was not at all afraid to die, for he knew that then he would be immediately with Jesus. And then he pleaded with us, not for his life, but for ours. He pleaded with us to awake and repent while there was still time. We killed him. But he died praying. Father, please forgive them and give them time to turn around. He said, I went back into the forest. But the face of that man and his love for me never left me. And at last, his Jesus found me. And now I want to tell everyone about him. Look with me at the book of Titus for a moment. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish. We were once morally senseless, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We really need to be careful about our tendency, our propensity to malign people. Our tendency to malign people who are enslaved to this world, who are enamored by the evil system of things. Not malign them, but speak evil of no one, he says. Avoid quarreling, avoid that. We realize that Paul tells us, live at peace among all people as much as is possible. But this is the general posture. This is the general attitude of of Christians, of those who are living in a dark, a deep, dark world. Your life, friends, is the greatest testimony for Christ. It's the clearest display of the greatness of grace before a wicked and watching world. A life that is clearly transformed by Christ. A life that demands a supernatural explanation. Always, Peter says, be ready to to, to give an answer for those who ask a reason for the hope that is within you. What makes you different, Christian? A life that is transformed by Christ and aimed at the glory of Christ is the human element that the Holy Spirit uses to make the gospel believable. MacArthur said this, the platform that we establish by the quality of our living in the direst kinds of circumstance is crucial to the impact of our testimony. This is what Peter is telling us about this this clear directive, this, this compelling motive and and this communicated objective so that we can put to silence the the, the moral senselessness, either so that people will be saved in the day of salvation or so that they will be secured for judgment when God judges them. Their mouths will be stopped up. That's God's purpose for us, church. And then he gives us a course to live. What course must we follow? What, what's the road that we must follow? Verses 16 and 17 back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Live as free as people who are free. What's the what's the, what's the course we, we live? We live as free people. We are members of the kingdom of God. We're called by God to not use our freedom in Christ as a cover up for evil behavior. Now we talked about this earlier, but I think it's something. Uh, I, I just think of something as base as exceeding the speed limit when we're on our way to church. That's not a a reason to break the law. But what about something bigger, like paying taxes? Now, that's a sore subject. I've heard people talk about not paying taxes, and there are all kinds of reasons for it. But someone who says that they're free from taxes because they're followers of Christ, they don't understand Christ. Just read the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, when Christ paid his own tax. To live as free people is not a political slogan. Live as free people is a call to remember that you have a responsibility to a greater master. Our freedom in Christ from our sin does not give us a license to do whatever we want to do. That's not the course for our life. That's not the way that we live. That's not the road we travel. 
We live as free people, understanding, praise the Lord, our sins have been dismissed. There is no longer record of wrong held over me. I am not condemned in Christ. Praise the Lord. But we not only live as free people, we live as slaves of God. That's the word. Living as servants of God, ESV has, living as slaves of God. Now, how do I live as a slave of God? Now, notice there are, he assigns four imperatives, rapid fire imperatives, four commands. We do this in honor, in love, fear, and honor. What does a slave of God, a servant of God, do in this present evil system of things? We can say this. He or she, one, honors everyone. Honors everyone. (laughs) We will often be dishonored in this world as Christians. But as slaves of God, we honor everyone. Everyone. What does that mean? We look at everyone as a direct creation of God. We look at everyone as created in the image of God. And that's hard, isn't it? We want to revile. I want to revile someone when they cut me off in traffic. I catch myself like that. Well, my wife catches me in that all the time. But we honor everyone as created in the image of God. That's what you do when you live as a slave of God. You're under a higher authority. You're under a higher power. Everyone created in the image of God and you give them that honor. And then loves the brotherhood. That's what a slave of God does. Loves the brotherhood. You know what that is. Peter took took this directly from the mouth of Jesus from John 13, 34 and 35. They'll know that you're my disciples by your what? Love for one another. It's a reference to those who are members of the kingdom, the brotherhood, the family of God. Love unconditionally everyone in the kingdom. Now that's easy to talk about as a theory. It's easy to talk about the church universal. I just love the church universal. But we talk about it in terms of not the church universal. We talk about it in terms of church what? Local. And that's more difficult to unconditionally love the people who genuinely irk you sometimes. Right? But when you live as a slave of God, you love the brotherhood. Not just theoretically, but in day to day practice. One who lives as a slave of God honors everyone and loves the brotherhood. And one who lives a slave, as a slave of God fears God. When, when you fear God, when you live in reverential awe of God, you will fear no one and nothing else. This is, to fear God is to give proper place to, to give proper respect to, to give a, a reverent awe to God. And we could probably spend a whole sermon on this concept, the concept of fearing God. If we read the Old Testament, we would say that this is the principle of living in wisdom. Live wisely. That's what fearing God is, living wisely. Put your life in proper perspective. Understand that you are under God. That's fearing God. Think about what the writer of Proverbs told his son in Proverbs twenty four twenty one. This is very important. My son, fear the Lord and the King. And do not join with those who do otherwise. The one who lives as a slave of God fears God. Has this understanding that you're living life under the authority of God. And his purpose for your being. That's why I said earlier. So many of us Christians think we're still in the world by mistake. 
that we're here by accident. Well, you know, God saved me and then he kind of forgot about it. No, no, no. He placed us here. Remember Esther for what? Such a time as this. And then somebody who lives as a slave of God. Lastly, he says, honors the emperor to show respect to whoever is ruling. And that's the rub, isn't it? (laughs) How do I do that? Well, I could see that person as created in the image of God. That's one way. Maybe more general, but more specific, I could actually say that I ought to see that person as directly appointed by God. Well, somebody says, no, the voters did that. Or it was a mistake. It was an error. It was an injustice. Well, listen, brothers and sisters, there is no one reigning today who has not been appointed by God for his purposes. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The question today is whether or not we will live as servants of God in the midst of a wicked world. Or if we decide, you know what, we know a better way. We know a better way to represent his supremacy. He says, you're called to represent my supremacy. You're called to represent my superiority. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 26. Just go there with me. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get done sometime soon. Acts 26, verse 19. Here is Paul before this man named King Agrippa. Acts chapter 26, verse 19. If I didn't say that first time. Um, As I read this text, remember what we've just been studying in 1 Peter and see if this is not the perfect embodiment of what we've just been talking about. This is Paul's words. These are Paul's words. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. The way to change men is not to change laws. The way to change laws is to change men. And the only weapon that we have as the church The only weapon that we have is the truth. And so, we are to be bold proclaimers of the truth. Now, when, when, when I say bold, I didn't say angry. I know, I know it's difficult to figure out. What does it mean to be bold? I'm not talking about being bombastic. I'm not talking about being angry but that we stand boldly for the truth. Someone says, stop preaching. And we say, well, I can't do that. 
because that would be to deny God, who is the one who placed you in this authority over me, and so I must obey God rather than you. And we just go on. See what Paul does? He just keeps taking them back to the word. He keeps taking them back to the word. He keeps taking them back to the truth. So if, if we are to live in this day and age, we have to understand in this wicked day and age, we have to understand our purpose. It's, we're not here by mistake. God has assigned us with this purpose to proclaim his excellency. And he said, while you're here, be subject to every human institution. He's talking here about civil obedience, not talking about sometimes the necessary civil disobedience. We might get into that in coming days, but not right now. That's not what the text is about. We are to live reverently before God and fearlessly in this world. We're representing God in this world. So we ought not be loved, uh, be in love with the world. We ought not to become enamored by its treasures or entangled in its philosophies. But to announce the ruling supremacy and sovereign superiority of God in all things, the small and the great. Not being fearful of what things are going on around us, but to live in ultimate submission to God, recognizing that he's doing a work. And his work is to save people and to secure some in judgment. It's been rightly said that there's more power in the prayer closet anyway than in the voting booth any day. And so that's what God has given us. He's given us his word and he's given us prayer. That doesn't mean we, we step away from those things. We, we, we're part of those things. We're living as residents in this world, whatever that looks like. But we recognize that we're put here by God. And that is a, actually that's a big weight to walk out of here with, isn't it? Walk out of here recognizing today we are put here by God for his purposes. So we ought not to be trifling with that or playing with other things. I like to ask a question about every text that I I preach of myself, and I want to ask the question of you today. Maybe you can just finish it for yourself. If I were to obey this text, I would fill in the blank. If I were to obey this text, I would look at every person I encounter as a direct creation of God. If I were to obey this text, I would sacrificially serve and love the church. If I were to put this text, if I were to obey this text, I would put myself in a place and posture of reverential awe of God. If I were to obey this text, I would recognize the ruling authorities as being put in place from and by God. We are representatives, brothers and sisters. It gets even more personal next week. Well, actually, I'm not going to be here next week. But when I get back, if people are still here, it gets even more personal because it goes even to your workplace. And then it gets even more personal than that. It goes to your home. Are we going to obey God? Or man? Let's pray.